Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week it's my great pleasure to welcome Jay Heinrichs, um, the expert in rhetoric and persuasive speech and persuasive writing, whose new book is called How to Argue with a Cat, A Human's Guide to the Art of Persuasion, um, which is really quite a challenge, Jay. Um, why would you um, set out a case for trying to argue with a cat? Because most of the instances of arguments I've had with my cat have been cases of the cat persuading me rather than vice versa. Well, that's really what we're talking about, isn't it? Um, you can learn a lot from a cat. And if you can take some of the principles of rhetoric that cats will teach you, you can then convince a human. Um, some some of these tools do work in persuading cats, at least in my experience, but it's it's a hard go, really. It is. I mean, it, how to make a cat take an antibiotic pill would be the yeah. pinnacle of the persuaders' art. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a, there is a there is something I call the lure in the ramp. I got it straight from Aristotle, who didn't quite put it that way. Um, you need to build the desire in the cat for something like the pill, and then you have to gradually work your way up into that action. So if you can get the cat, and I've actually done this with an antibiotic pill with one of my cats where you, um, you feed it things that are embedded in food that aren't pills and then to do it larger and larger with harder and harder objects inside, preferably yeah. edible, and then the cat will end up eating the pill. That's it. That's the, and if you think about that, you can do that with humans as well. <laughs> you know, chunk the action, ask for a little bit, don't ask for the end product. And just lead them up the garden lead path. Him, lead them up the garden path, or the ramp, as I put it. Now, you went straight there to Aristotle, and one of the things I like about your work is that, you know, it's grounded in the classical tradition of, you know, how we understand rhetoric. But obviously, you know, like that pill, it's been kind of sweetened from modern audience. Um, but what was it that made you move on to cats particularly? I mean, why did you think the cat was a good, you know, obviously they're non linguistic animals which seems to go slightly against the yeah yeah thing. and that's exactly why i did it about cats I, mean, I had written a previous book as you know that um that sold well enough that publishers would want another book and yet some, this is thank you for arguing. thank you for yeah. arguing and some readers had said uh some readers found it a, a tough go to, to to get through all these many rhetorical principles and learn classical rhetoric that way. And they asked for something a little bit simpler. And, you know, to be honest with you, you put the word cat in the title and it, anybody will buy it. I mean, this is now a bestseller in Amazon UK. It hasn't even come out yet. Be it's because <laughs> it's not me, because I haven't read it. It's cats. Now, the other thing, though, which is interesting, this is a non-linguistic part. I think a lot of people learn rhetoric the wrong way by focusing first on the words or logical principles, uh, instead of thinking about what true persuasion really is about. And if you think about this, you know, a lot of persuasion has to do not so much with words, but with attitudes, with expression of character, with even things like uh, gesture, voice, posture. Yes, you've got a good section on body language in there. You know. Yeah, cats are brilliant at it. Um, actually, that thing you were saying about cats selling books, the late Alan Corrin, British humorist, um, was trying to figure out which books sold, and he said, oh, books about cats, and books about Hitler and Nazis, and books about golf. And so he wrote a book called Golfing with Cats and put a swastika on the cover, and it became a bestseller. Brilliant. Do you know there was a, there was a predecessor to that? I think that idea originated, at least so I'm told, uh -huh. in the 1920s, 
a similar argument was made that you could sell any book with Lincoln, uh, a doctor, or a dog in the title, and somebody published a bestseller, Lincoln's Doctor's Dog. That's a sort of mini-genre emerging here, isn't it? Yeah. So I was thinking porn in cats, but I didn't want to go there. No, best not. Well, if it's a success, maybe for the next one. Now, in the very early in the book, you draw what I think is a, a useful and interesting distinction between an argument and a fight. Can you explain that for listeners? Yeah, and this is one of the biggest mistake pe- people will p- biggest mistakes people will make um, when they're thinking about the words and how to push back against an opponent. In a fight, you try to win. You try to dominate the opponent either by scoring logical points or by, if you have a Y chromosome, simply dominating, speaking more loudly or or just dominating the conversation. In an argument. You're trying to win over the opponent, and ideally, you're trying to make it so that both sides, including you, think they've won. Can I tell you a story really quickly? Yeah. So I, I tell in my other book, Thank You for Arguing, that um, my son trapped me in the bathroom by s- squeezing all the toothpaste out of the tube. And when I found I couldn't brush my teeth, no, having a 15-year-old son, that's how old he was at the time, I knew who the likely culprit was. So I shouted through the closed door, George, who used up all the toothpaste? And I heard a sarcastic voice on the other side. It was sarcastic, saying, that's not the point, is it, Dad? The point is, how are we going to keep this from happening again? Now, he was sarcastic, but I had taught him for years that a really important principle of rhetoric is that when you are in trouble, change the tense to the future, because the trouble happened in the past, solve the problem for all time, and you can get yourself out of trouble. So the fact that he had actually been listening all that time, being a teenager, he was appearing not to, um, was kind of thrilling for a parent. Yeah. So uh, I let him win. I said, okay, George, you win. Now will you please get me some toothpaste? And he went down willingly into our freezing basement and brought back a tube. And I like to ask audiences, who do you think won? You know? And so all the parents immediately say, you did, man. <laughs> this is, you know, you talk a teenager into running an errand. That's brilliant. And to this day, my son says, no, I won. That is the ideal of argument. And he was able to show generosity and victory by doing something for you as well. Exactly. So and, you know, our, our relationship was better in the long run. And that is the highest goal of all, as far as I'm concerned, especially if you're married. Yeah. Now you, I mean, that thing of shifting tense is, I think, very interesting. Because you, you talk a lot about how, you know, so much of what works in rhetoric is to do with not a logical position, but what people want, what people are going to do, um, and you know what what it's based on is more than just a series of dry facts. But you you say you know a habit is as good as a truth. I mean, does strict formal logic have any place in rhetoric at all? Yes, it in moderate amounts. And of course, the worst thing you could do is point out a fallacy to the other person. That's almost as bad as correcting their grammar. Instead, you know, it's interesting. I, again, we're, we're getting Aristotelian here, as you know. But what he called logos, or the logic of rhetoric, really doesn't so much have to do with formal logic as with the beliefs and expectations of the audience. And you mentioned a habit for a cat. A habit is as good as a fact. That's true of the rest of us, really. <laughs> so, you know, what an audience believes and expects is as good as a fact. What an audience thinks is a logical conclusion is as good as a proper, you know, formal logical conclusion. It's all about what the audience 
is thinking, not about what you're thinking. And if you can use that, then you win your your argument. You can win the day. And you also talk about this idea of decorum. What what do you mean by decorum? Yeah, I got a little cheesy, frankly, with the cat <laughs> analogy here. <laughs> so how do you show cat decorum exactly? Cat like fits wherever it wants. Well, that's it. A cat will fit anywhere it wants, literally. So. Put a box on the floor, and anybody who has a cat knows the cat's going to fit into that box no matter what size it is. You can do it in an egg carton, and a cat will try to get in. So that is really what decorum is all about. One, one interpretation of the word decorum in Latin is fitness or fitting in. So if you think about um, you know Darwinian fitness, you know the the survival of the fittest is the survival of those who fit their environment best. And that's what you're doing with decorum. So decorum isn't necessarily how you hold your fork at dinner, unless you're at a place where people care about that sort of thing. But instead, you know, speaking enough of the audience's language so that they feel like you're part of their tribe can be very important. How you dress can determine how well you fit in. And that's, you know, what a cat does with a box you want to do with an audience. Now, the, the really tricky part for humans, though, is that... Um, well, like a cat, you can look ridiculous if you try to fit and it's not really a good fit. So I'm 62 and I'm white uh, and trying to fit in with a group of 16-year-old African-Americans or South Asians would be a tricky thing to do if I tried to, to use their, their language exactly. So instead, one way to fit in is to tell yourself you're in love with the audience and then try to act that out. And what you may find is that you actually do love the audience. And this is something I call agreeability. You act agreeably, and it makes you more agreeable, not just to the audience. It makes them agreeable to you. Okay, to pull focus a bit and talk about your, your own history with this subject, how did you, you know, get into the rhetoric business, as it were? How did you become interested in what, certainly I think, when you started writing about it, and still when I've started writing about it, in large part was seen as... You know, this very kind of recondite, arcane subject that had very little reference to the modern world, full of strange Latin and Greek terms. Yeah, I, I almost literally stumbled into this subject. All my life I had thought, you know, being a reader like you um, and loving books, I thought there, words have to do more than just sitting around looking pretty and being all literary. Um, they, they, they moved people, they caused actions, they broke down civilizations, they built new ones. And I thought, there's got to be some way to study that. And I actually went to grad school briefly at Johns Hopkins to try to get a joint PhD in English and political science, foreign policy. Because what I was trying to do was to, to understand the practical purpose of words. I didn't know about rhetoric. It would have been so much easier just to study that instead. I realized academia and I wouldn't get along very well, and I dropped out. Years later, I'm working as an administrator at Dartmouth College, an Ivy League school in the U.S., and I was bored in my job, and I spent longer and longer lunch hours in the library. One day, I find myself in a portion of the stacks. It's open stacks in this library. And I was in this part of the library where literally there were cobwebs and half the fluorescent bulbs were burned out. And one book was bound in red leather. And I guess that's what caught my eye, just idly. I brought it down. I wondered what the subject was that clearly nobody had checked out in many years. They didn't even have the barcodes in the back. You know, it had the old fashioned card stamps, <laughs> yeah, you know. Dewey Decimal. Yeah, Dewey Decimal. And so I open up the book. 
and I discover it's got John Quincy Adams' signature in it, former president of the United States. And I'm a history buff. It's this actual signature in the book, and nobody had noticed for so many years. Turns out he wrote that when he was a United States senator, uh, when he became the first um, Boylston professor of rhetoric and oratory at Harvard. This guy, he was, a, I think he was 36, 38. He was a United States senator who somehow commuted back when that was really hard. It was 1805, I think, um, between Cambridge, Massachusetts and Washington, D.C., which must have been like a two-week trip. Um, and he taught these first-year students, freshmen at Harvard, who were future masters of the universe. I actually looked up who these students were, and they ended up ruling their country's business and politics. Here these future leaders were in the room, and he told them in the first lecture, now, here I am standing there, I see his signature, I want to see what he's writing. I, I turn to the first lecture, and he begins by saying, snatch from the relics of ancient oratory those unresisted powers which mold the mind of man to the will of the speaker and yield the guidance of the nation to the dominion of the voice. Now that's a little bit arcane language, you know, in these times. But I thought, can you imagine what these students were thinking at the time? Can you imagine being this adolescent thinking, I gotta get me some of these unresisted powers? <laughs> you know, and the thing is, they knew that they were they were to the manner born. The, this group, American style, they knew they were going to be taking over this brand new country. And here was this man, the son of the founders, he'd been around the world, a United States senator, and he was going to share these secrets to them, with them. And I thought, I want to know him myself. And so I ended up, essentially, these lectures were a syllabus, and I read everything that John Quincy Adams told me to read. Ah, starting with the authority. And you've gone on to work as well as writing your very good book about rhetoric, you've gone on to work as a consultant and you train public bodies, including, I see, NASA. And I'm very kind of instantly, obviously, everyone's interest is peaked in that because you think, you know, travelling into space, what on earth has that got to do with persuasion? I mean, how? Did, what were you teaching people at NASA? Well, for, the first thing I did was um, rocket scientists need, needed to learn how to speak English, and they knew that. So... Um, can you imagine, though, my first class, it was a workshop, was in front of 40 of the most resentful-looking engineers you've ever met in your life because they, they thought, we've got important things to do here. We don't want to learn this stuff. Um, so it was their boss who told them they had to attend this thing. So I started, I'm the son of an engineer, so I started writing schematics as if it's electrical engineering. <laughs> and I did it with the tools of rhetoric. And that was, it was brilliant. They, they were they understood these tools just like that because they saw them as tools and how they applied and see whether saw they, whether they worked or not. And I brought a lot of evidence, a lot of data of what worked and what didn't. Now, that ended That's up... Decorum, obviously. Decorum. This is me being decorous, exactly, fitting in. Uh, but that led to something much bigger. There's a mission directorate that sort of is the thought leader for the rest of NASA, figuring out what policy will be. And one of the biggest problems that NASA has is that Americans have lost the belief that, that, that um, anything in space should be public funded. There's this belief, it's false, that Elon Musk can send sports cars into space. He can do anything. So um, the problem is that Elon Musk has $300 billion of government backing in terms of contrast that's sending those big rockets into space. He's not doing this alone. The bigger problem from NASA is that they can't fund, Congress has failed to fund all the missions that they were supposed to be you know, doing. 
So they're about a quarter to a third under budget, which isn't bad for a government agency. But this is space we're talking about. It really takes 100% funding for that rocket to go all the way up. So they asked, could I reframe space for thought leaders in a way that would eventually get Congress to fund NASA more fully. Now this is something that people often don't realize about persuasion. We think that we're just gonna change minds. Pro-Brexit to anti-Brexit, you know, let's yeah. do that, switch them over. When really most persuasion has to do with setting people's priority levels. I mean, nobody's against space, and maybe a few are, but very few people say space is a bad idea. You know, it seems kind of inevitable for humanity to be out there. The bigger question is, is it worth spending your tax dollars on space? And is that more important than other priorities that you might want to be spending money on as a citizen or a government? So the question is, how do you get thought leaders, you know, the, the most influential people who are influential to members of Congress to, to talk Congress into doing this? So um, we reframe space. You think of space as this vast emptiness, hence the word, uh, with maybe the moon and Mars at the end and something like um, science fiction beyond that. Uh, but if you look at the way space is actually configured as a physicist would, it's a series of hills and valleys. They're gravitational waves. If you ride a bike, you're riding up a gravitational wave, not a hill. <laughs> and when you ride down, that's gravity pulling you back to this sphere that's the Earth. And that's what space is. So if you think about that, the other, the other analogy I use is Space is an economy. It literally is right now. There's a $300 billion a year U.S. economy alone in communications, communication satellites, GPS, you know, our phones. Uh, that's a lot of money. You think about weather and how much worth that is. And that's weather is done in space right now. That's how we measure it and so on. What's, what's gradually building up uh, in the next generation is going to be tourism and mining. So already there's a database on the Internet that has more than 20,000 asteroids that have been uh, through spectronomy, spectronomy? Spectroscopy? Not a, whatever, sure. whatever it is, yes. pointing colors into space or something, yeah, yeah. measuring the components. Coffee. Yeah, they can figure out what's in a body with, with astonishing accuracy, including asteroids in the Kuiper belt and a little bit closer. One asteroid has been measured to have more than a trillion dollars of platinum what we call rare earth minerals, which we're running out of and destroying the environment, trying to find more, um, asteroids contain vast amounts of these. So you're essentially saying to Congress, there's money in it for you. There's it, exactly. Now, what we're really saying is this is a, literally a frontier. And if you think about the way North America, the Mer North American frontier was founded, never mind the poor native inhabitants who had to be abused along the way. Space doesn't have that, presumably. No. Um, the way this happens is you do have entrepreneurs and you have very brave people willing to risk their lives in the frontier. But actually, the most important entity is government in the beginning. You're talking so about put military. The down there, yeah. Right. Po building posts, you know, fighting wars. That's, you know, what governments do in frontiers. And that is, um, fortunately and otherwise, what's happening in space already. You know, governments are racing to get up there. There's a lot of competition to be first. And so we're talking about government, entrepreneurship, and then finally, um, what you want to do in space is to try, and this is all what the framing is all about, is to try to get entrepreneurs to move from 
um, incalculable risk to calculable risk. And that makes the money worthwhile for private investment. Now, so we labeled this with the term the gravity well, because that's what physicists call it. It's a gravity well between you know two bodies or three bodies. So the gravity well between the Earth and Mars is one big hill and then a big downhill. And there's a frontier that's settled in between. The way we're measuring the success is not whether Congress increases funding. That's going to take a while, especially with this Congress. Um, but rather, are people, thought leaders, actually using the term gravity well? And we're measuring that through the usual analytics on social media. And we're finding that we've moved that needle quite a bit in the past year since we started this content program. And that's the kind of thing I do with other agencies and corporations, et cetera. I'm sorry I got lost in space here. No, no, no. But you I'm, got me going. eating it up. Um, can I, I mean, since we're on subjects current policy, I think I, you know, as, as somebody who works in this field particularly, in your home country, the big debate at the moment, which seems to be kind of deadlocked, is about gun control. If you were called upon to apply your professional skills to it, how would you sort of undeadlock that? How would you advise, say, somebody who was advocating greater gun control to kind of, you know, as it were, win over the NRA or win people from the NRA? Or, for the sake of argument, if you were the NRA, how would you... Going to continue to prosecute your case? I have a really simple answer, and it is the right answer, and it's not going to happen. It, that is, for everyone on the left, everyone pro-gun control, which apparently is between 65 and 70% of the electorate, to shut up, not say anything. Next school shooting, remain silent. You know that's not going to happen, and it can't happen. Legitimately, it won't happen. Why do I say that? Well, because the NRA depends on the threat of your gun being taken from you. If the moment the left stops mentioning gun control, and that's a terrible word rhetorically, as you know, control, you know, you combine gun with control, that's a terrible thing. Cold dead hands. Yeah. Exactly. For good reason. You know, it's freedom, man. So uh, if, if you could get responsible gun owners to take responsibility, they're off the hook right now. They don't have to. And I live in the state of New Hampshire, the libertarian state of the country. Our license plate literally says live free or die, which is now more of an and than an or. <laughs> and, 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 and I have conversations with people all the time, and there are a lot of gun owners who are saying, this is dangerous. We should not be arming kindergarten teachers. We think this is really stupid, but we can't speak up because the NRA has so much power now. And the reason it does is it gets all its oxygen from the left. But, you know, by saying there's this constant threat, we have to, we can't give an inch, even if it's a reasonable thing, you know, raising the, the, the age of, of how old you can be in order to buy an assault rifle, for instance, seems like a reasonable thing, even to most gun owners. And, and statistically, the data do show this. Most gun owners think that probably 18-year-olds, especially crazy ones, shouldn't have an assault rifle. And yet they're remaining silent because all the, the, the speaking is being done on the left and, and, and on the part of the NRA. Is your supposition that if the un, you know, un, inconceivable experiment of the left being quiet about gun control were to be carried out, do you imagine that sometime down the line the NRA themselves would lobby for stricter background checks? Is that the end game? I think that the NRA needs to be less powerful. And I think most Americans don't seem to realize that the, the NRA is not about money at all. It's about votes. 
the NRA is mostly based on small donations by people who are passionate about guns and freedom as they interpret it. And so what you need to do is to make it so that you change the culture of guns. And, and this is the, the culture has changed dramatically since the late 1970s in terms of guns. And a lot of Americans don't realize that because most Americans were born after that era. And we've forgotten. We're good at forgetting in, this, in, in America. So, you know, what's more important, I think, is to be able to say, never mind the NRA. You need to make them a less important component of the debate and let reasonable people debate. Take the left out and take the right out. And you end up actually with moderates who, who are the majority of the electorate when it comes to gun control. The problem is that those voices, the voices that exist, depend on each other. The NRA and the left both depend on each other. And, and that's, you have to take that oxygen out. Leave the NRA out and the left out. Can I also ask, I mean, I was very struck by something you, um, and have freely quoted it here, there and everywhere, you wrote in, um, thank you for arguing, where you took one of the famously garbled lines of George W. Bush, where, where he said, uh, um, families is where our wings take dream. Um, Isn't that the most brilliant poetry? It was wonderful. But you, you just want to set it to music. Yeah, and what you said was, everyone says this doesn't, you know, would, shouldn't work, but actually you've got families, wings, dream in close collocation, and the fact that the syntax doesn't work is irrelevant to its persuasive power. And, of course, now, you know, do you think the same thing applies to President Trump? Because, you know, he quite often is full of sentences that don't quite finish where they seem to be heading for. That, you know, I mean, what do you think of him as an orator? One thing that Trump does, it's really effective if you're speaking tribally in particular, and that's what he, his, as you know, his rhetoric is all about the tribe. So if he can keep a minority of Americans really passionate, he wins just the same way as the NRA does. It's no accident the NRA backs him. What he does is a little different from George W. Bush. Bush would, um, would use keywords and repeat them. So, for example, when he was speaking in front of a female audience, he would use the word tender all the time. And clearly that had been focus grouped. Uh, you know, I'm a little surprised by it. I can't imagine women responding to this text and talking about tenderness, but apparently it did. Uh, it's a bit country western, isn't it? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. I mean, I, I don't get it, but then I'm not a woman in a focus group. So, um, But now what Trump does, which is a little bit different, is he actually works off unconsciously, I'm sure, simply because it works for him, an ancient principle called the period, in Greek, periodos, which is where Americans get their full stop period mark from. Uh, and it has to do with this ancient um, belief that the rhythms of the body and the rhythms of the brain are in concert, that they, they go together somehow. So the, the ancient Greeks believed that um, a, a, a thought that would be received by an audience was the equivalent of one orator's sustained breath. So I tested this theory, not with Trump in the beginning, because I did it before Trump was Trump, certainly long before he was President Trump. I went to, to, to look at movie speeches. And one great thing about measuring when's the climax of a movie speech, and that's what we're talking about with a period. Generally, it's the, it's the, the peroration, which is related to the same root, periodos. Um, when the music wells up in the scene where the coach is given the big speech in the locker room or, you know, where the, you know, the president saves the day from asteroids or whatever. Um, when the music starts, you know that that's the cue that is the climax of the speech. 
to the very end of the speech. What was really interesting is that Hollywood didn't study rhetoric. These scriptwriters didn't do it. But from the beginning to the end, from the beginning of the music to the end of the speech, was consistently 11 to 13 seconds, usually 12. And that's about 30 to 40 words, depending on how fast one talks. And so I went back and I checked the climaxes of speeches of politicians over the past five to 10 years, including Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton would have one period, 12 seconds long, consistently in all her speeches. That would be the big applause line. Uh, Barack Obama absolutely would nail, this is not white America, black America, this is 12 seconds long. Trump, the difference with Trump is, he speaks in, in what's called the comedic style, where you do the setup, punchline, setup, punchline, often in non sequiturs. So his whole speech would be periods. 12 seconds, laugh line or applause, generally. 12 seconds, about something utterly different. So the difference is this, his syntax actually usually holds together fairly well, not brilliantly. His logic isn't that great, obviously. But he will, um, he'll hit his lines as periods and then just move on and do a, a different one. And for people with ADD, it's just absolutely perfect. Yeah, or presumably sound bites on news programs. Exactly, and it works as a sound bite. Although these days, 12 seconds sounds kind of long to me, but maybe I have ADD, I don't know. <laughs> or maybe you're half cat. Anyway, exactly. <laughs> J. Heinrichs, thank you very much indeed for your time. Sam, it's a pleasure. Yeah.